Yeah, so resume. Or another 30 minutes or so. I want to say a few more words about opioids and the practicalities of prescribing, but just um, where did we leave off the last time, when, whenever it was? So I went to this just to sort of set up the material that we talked about. Did, did I talk about autocoids at all? No. no. So I went from this slide here. The, um, did I talk about that? Yeah. Like why that was it? Okay. I don't remember that. One. All right. Um, does anyone know the story of the Sackler family? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all here because of OxyContin. Uh, <laughs> all right, the, um, if you were to write a prescription for an opioid, the majority of those drugs that Kevin just talked about are in what controlled substance class? It's not, the, and the, ske the schedules are um, in this state, the schedules are. One through six. Both states it goes to five. In the state it's six. It's two. It's two. two. Yeah, schedule two. So what that means is that those drugs have a very high potential for abuse, yet there is recognized medical use. So we accept that they may be needed for some people. And that's really the only difference between schedule one and schedule two. The level of abuse is essentially comparable but the drugs in Schedule 1 have no recognized or accepted medical use. So oxycodone, morphine, fentanyl, meperidine, those are all Schedule 2 controlled substances. Even all the products that have hydrocodone in them, mixed with acetaminophen or not, those are Schedule 2. Codeine varies depending on what codeine is mixed for and what you're going to be using it for. It could be Schedule 2, it could be Schedule 3, it could be all the way down at Schedule 5, but that's really the exception. What are examples of drugs in Schedule 1? Marijuana. Well, marijuana is a tricky one. Um, but at the federal level, yeah, that's where it stands. And the biggest one relevant to this material today is heroin, is heroin right? Heroin is a morphine derivative. It's diacetylmorphine. It's morphine with a couple of different acetate groups attached to it. If you have a true, true allergy to morphine, albeit rare, but sometimes it happens, what does that imply for heroin? Sorry, but heroin is out too. There's a cross-reactivity between the two, provided it's a true allergy. More, a heroin at one point was an accepted drug for medical use. What was it accepted for use? Like in 1901, you could go to the corner drugstore and buy heroin. All you needed was some money. Wasn't for teething, although it might have been used for that purpose. <laughs> Wasn't psychologic. It was women like crazy. Crazy women? <laughs> what, what about crazy men? <laughs> it was it was as a cough suppressant. It was heroin liquid as a cough suppressant agent. And you know those good times are gone. <laughs> so, yeah. No, naloxone is not a controlled substance. Nor should it be. No. No. I mean, it won't do anything except reverse the effects of your opioid. If you had a choice, 
which brings up a good um, memory. If you had a choice, if you were designing naloxone, would you want it to be long-acting? It's short-acting, we know that. Kevin just taught us that it is. If you, if you could change that, would you make it long-acting? No. No. Why? Could you produce a prolonged depressive state because now you're interfering with those endorphins that you produce naturally? Although if you're sedentary all day long, those endorphins aren't doing anything. <laughs> Come back to that. People are rapidly going to withdrawal. Yeah, that's the dilemma, right? It would be nice to last longer, but you're going to induce withdrawal symptoms if you're used to taking opioids. And then how do you negate the withdrawal symptoms? More opioids, right? And if there's so much of an overdose drug on board, the dose it's going to take to get you back to the point that you need to treat the withdrawal symptoms might put you right back into another overdose. And so it's easier to just give more of the antidote. If it wears off too soon, you give more. Wears off, give more. So it's by design. Naloxone is short-acting by design. In fact, there are long-acting versions. Remember naltrexone was a long-acting Narcan-like drug. It's not used for opioid reversal. It would work, but it's too long-lasting. That drug lasts at a minimum all day long if you take it orally. That's the one if you give it orally, it's used for some purposes, and if you give it by injection for others, usually for detox purposes, like someone has a history of alcohol abuse, it turns out that giving opioid receptor blocking drugs reduces cravings for alcohol. Or if you're someone who has a history of abusing opioids and you'd like to abstain, a long-acting naltrexone is the deterrent you might need. Whether you take the opioid or not, it's not going to produce the rewarding effect because you've taken naltrexone and it's in your body all day long. That's provided you've completely detoxed. And now you, what you're trying to do is keep from going back on the wagon. All right, back to this. If you were to prescribe an opioid, what do you need to do? Yeah. You want to add to that? No, I, uh, I don't. Oh, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, why do we want the opioid reversal agent, known as naloxone, to be short-acting? Does anyone else want to explain this? Just want it to work that second? Well, we want to have a quick onset, so that's desirable no matter what. The faster it works, the better, because this is usually a life-threatening scenario you're trying to deal with. At a minimum, it's trying to manage side effects. Why do we want it to be short-acting? Uh, I think, because if it's long-acting, then it ends up maybe overcoming the effects of the opioid in the first place, and then they go through withdrawal, and then you have to give them an opioid to bring them back up to normal, and it's kind of a big cycle, and you end up with high doses. Yep. All right. Did you hear that? Did it make sense? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll restate it again, but that's exactly it. So then, if you have patients stay in the hospital who are terrified of taking an opioid for that very reason, um, so that's an interesting question. So you have a patient in the hospital who is um, 
quite scared of using an opioid because of the fear of all the bad things opioids could do, you could give them naltrexone to protect them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You could, but couldn't we just not give them an opioid? <laughs> I mean, if you give them naltrexone, they're not going to get any benefit from the opioid. So just don't give the opioid. Right? I mean, I guess that's so they're essentially the same thing. Like a surgical uh, so you administered, all right, so that's a little bit different scenario. So you administer an opioid because they are conscious and they couldn't do anything about it. And assuming they consented to it. And then now that they are um, outside of the dire need for the opioid, give them the reversal agent. I mean, I guess you could do that. Okay. It's not usually used that way, but it's a, at least theoretical possibility. Yeah. Um, I have a question, not necessarily about like mechanisms, but do you find that the availability of naloxone has changed the amount of people using opioids because now they have the antidote or the reversal agent? Um, it has. Yeah. yeah, so has the availability of naloxone, which is it's almost ubiquitous now, has it changed the dynamics of how opioids are being used? And the answer to that is yes. And the best evidence from this comes from studies being down the street at BMC. So um, I think his name is Dr. Waleed, who also happens to be the state's naloxone medical director, um, and is the reason why we have standing orders for naloxone through most pharmacies without a prescription, has studied this extensively. And the question is, is the, is the drug itself, naloxone itself, changing it, or is it the discussion that comes around the use of naloxone? And a lot of folks think it's the latter. It's simply talking to patients and p making people aware through other advertisements that this is a drug that's needed to correct the overdoses that come with opioids that's changing the way opioids are being used. Yeah. Still doesn't mean that we're out of the woods in terms of big, big problems with opioids, but um, it's plateaued, at least in this state, in terms of number of deaths per year. The first parts of this year and the ending parts of last year show that the rate of death from opioid overdose is no longer increasing. It's still a high number, but it's a flat number. So that's, that's a good sign. All right. Um, so checking the mass PAT, right? What is that? A database. A database. Yeah. Of who's getting what for controlled substances, right? No matter how the patient pays for their controlled substance, whether it's billed through their insurance or they pay cash, provided they're using the legitimate ID, you should be able to find them in the system and see what they filled for opioids at any time in the past year at any pharmacy. Now, there are patients that, believe it or not, have false identifications and are in the system in multiple ways, and they're able to figure out ways around this. But it's becoming harder and harder to do. So how often do you need to check that? What about the 48 hours? Within 48 hours? Yeah, I didn't know about the time limit, so that's an additional detail. Lie to us, make sure we did it. Maybe they could have. <laughs> so it's every time you prescribe the control substance. Every time. And what we've done in our practice, which is adult primary care here, is we've hired two full-time physician assistants, one from this program, who was in the first graduating class a few years ago. And the other from <laughs> the other from the Northeastern program. We're actually looking to hire three more for um, 
the coming two years. Well, by that time, there'll probably be some turnover. You never know. But a lot of that is because we have over 500 patients in our practice who are on chronic opioids, and they need intense attention. And so a big part of their job, not their only job, but a big part of their job is making sure all of this stuff is getting done in the appropriate way. And so in our practice alone, we've seen a plateauing of opioid prescriptions, I think because we're paying better attention to it. Not because we're denying needy people use of good medicines, but we're just cleaning out the ones that maybe aren't using it appropriately or using more than they probably should have. All right, we're going to move on. Autocoids is the next section. What does this word mean to you? Did I define that? These are, I mean, the definition for this, I don't care if you um, remember the definition or not. It was interesting to hear the typing. I don't hear the typing when I'm up here talking to you guys, but when I was sitting over there, <laughs> it, was, um, it was interesting how it would, it would fluctuate. <laughs> and it was like across the class. And everyone, you know, when there was something that sounded important, everyone was typing at the same time. <laughs> All right, so anyway, autocoids are hormone-like substances that are produced in the body in close proximity to where they exert some kind of physiologic effect. And so think about thromboxane from a couple of weeks ago with Justin's material. Right? Thromboxanes are produced where? Platelets. On platelets, right? And, and thromboxanes are produced the a chemical reaction that occurs between arachidonic acid and what's the enzyme? And cyclooxygenase. Right, so thromboxane essentially is a type or a subtype of prostaglandin. It meets the definition of autocoid. It's produced on the platelets and that's where it exerts an activity. In this case, the activity is to promote platelet activation. When it comes to the rest of the prostaglandins, they're being produced, the ones that we cons were concerned about, they're being produced at sites of pain, inflammation, and fever. So prostaglandins type, you know, certain letters, whether it's F or G or E, they can be responsible for pain sensation in the periphery, for inflammation, for changes in body temperature that are regulated in the hypothalamus. Leukotrienes, where are they produced? In the lungs. They come from the same pathway. That's why I group these two together. Prostaglandins and leukotrienes, they originate with arachidonic acid. Why does one form versus the other? It's the enzyme and the location. In the lungs, it's lipooxygenase turning arachidonic acid into leukotrienes. Whereas in the platelet, it's arachidonic acid turning, turning via cyclooxygenase into either thromboxane or prostacycline. So I like to put those together, and I use the next picture to further illustrate that. Histamine and kinase, I put them together because the effect of those substances is more similar than not. Those tend to be irritating, pro-inflammatory substances that are oftentimes important mediators of allergy and allergic reactions. Not that they get produced in the same places, but that they have very similar physiologic effects, and you could call them, by definition, autocoids. And histamine is a very important drug target. Kynin's a little bit important, but not as much as histamine. And then lastly, serotonin. That stands alone because of all the different things that serotonin can do. 
Now, when you think about serotonin, what first comes to mind? What part of the body? The brain, right? But where is most of your serotonin? In the periphery, and specifically in the GI tract. More than 80% of your serotonin is in your, is in your intestinal tract. Even though we talk about pharmacologic manipulation, we're usually, usually talking about how we can alter serotonin in the brain. And what are we usually trying to do to it? Somehow increase its levels, right, or increase its activity. Many of the antidepressants work by somehow elevating serotonin activity or serotonin levels. Why that translates into benefit of depression isn't really clear, but we know that that seems to be a suitable target. So SSRI antidepressants, most common, but there are a bunch of others that also can elevate or alter serotonin activity. Kevin had asked about the psychotropic agents. Um, there was some mixed responses in there. Where are you with that? I mean, we will learn it by in two weeks. In two weeks. Dr. Hansen's going to go through it or have one of her fellows do it? But it was like last week, so we don't have a good grasp on it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some changes about how that's been taught over the past few years. We'll have to see how that goes. Um, <laughs> can you teach us it? Where did I leave the, the slide? It's, it's on the card right there. Okay. So here is that arachidonic acid cascade again. So as you can see, if this substance is acted upon by levo-oxygenase, leukotrienes are formed. And we agreed that leukotrienes are primarily where? In the lungs. In the lungs. And what do leukotrienes do there? Bronchospasm. They promote bronchospasm and they promote inflammation and irritation. Now, many people, these leukotrienes are there, but they're not causing symptoms. What population is very susceptible to leukotriene production? People with underlying pulmonary disorders, especially people with underlying asthma. So having a shift towards more leukotriene production can trigger asthma flares in predisposed people. And thus giving drugs that somehow interfere with this pathway can be a symptomatic treatment for asthma. What would you do to this pathway on the right if you wanted to treat asthma. Get rid of lipooxygenase. That would be one potential target. Let's take away the enzymes so that leukotrienes can't form in the first place. And there is a drug that does that. It's called Xyluton. It's not used very often because it has undesirable pharmacokinetic properties and pretty significant liver toxicity needs to be given at least two to three times a day, sometimes four times a day. And the liver toxicity that might come with its use makes it not really suitable for widespread clinical practice. Alternatively, what could you do? So, arachidonic acid gets converted by lipooxygenase into leukotrienes. It's the leukotrienes that are the pathophysiologic substance in this case. We could prevent their formation by knocking out the enzyme, or what else could we do? Give something for the substance itself, right? What would you want to do to them? Stimulate them or block them? Block them, right? And who's heard of this drug? Montelukast. Yeah, some people have heard of this, right? The other name for it when it was a brand was Singular. 
Singulaire is a leukotriene receptor blocker. So whether the enzyme is there or not, whether or not the leukotrienes get produced or not, they can't bind to their receptors and do what they normally do. So this is a fairly useful anti-inflammatory drug for patients with asthma. And what's different about it from other drugs for asthma is the way that it's delivered. Most therapies for asthma are delivered by what means? They're inhaled therapies, right? The drug right to the lung, right to the respiratory tract. In the case of Montelukast, what is it? It's a tablet that you take usually just once a day. And this is America, which is a pill-taking society. Fits right well with the rest of the way that we practice. Now, that's not to say that's the only reason it might be used, but there are some patients that struggle with inhaled therapies. This might be an attractive option. Or maybe it's an option we use on top of the usual inhaled therapies because inhaled therapy by itself wasn't enough to get the disease under control. Who in particular tends to struggle with the inhaled devices? Children, right? So Montelukas is an attractive drug to use in pediatrics if you meet some other criteria. And we'll talk more about these pulmonary drugs later on. I think towards, probably in the second semester is I think where it comes up. All right, and then on the left, cyclooxygenase converted to thromboxane. We interfere with that by using aspirin, right? That's the target. Cyclooxygenase converting to prostaglandins that cause pain, inflammation, and fever, like prostaglandin type D and a few others. What do we use to interfere with that? NSAIDs. That's where the NSAIDs play a role. And we'll talk more about those next week. Drugs like ibuprofen, naproxen, and how those alter this pathway. Serotonin and the things that it does that are pharmacologic targets for the most part. Increases in serotonin tend to be associated with sedation. And sometimes we might give serotonin or serotonin-like drugs to promote that effect. There is an over-the-counter supplement that mimics the serotonin-like effect on the sleep patterns. What is that? Melatonin. Melatonin. It's a serotonin derivative that is very quick onset, short duration of action. It's ideal to help you to get to sleep, but it won't keep you asleep if that's what you're struggling with. If you're waking up every night at 3 a.m. and that's too early and you'd rather sleep for another couple hours, it doesn't extend that duration. But if your trouble is getting to sleep to begin with, then maybe a drug like melatonin, the serotonin-like agent, might be helpful. Or mood. We've talked about how elevating serotonin levels seems to be associated with improvement in mood in patients who have underlying depression. And so the SSRIs are used for that purpose. Now, we also acknowledge that most serotonin in the body is found in the GI tract. What does it do there? There are specific serotonin receptors known as 5-HT, represent serotonin, 5-HT type 3 receptors. Those are abundant in the GI tract. So that's what serotonin is binding to when it's in the digestive tract. What is the physiologic response? How do you feel? Full is not a bad answer. It's not what I was really looking for. <laughs> it was close to what I was looking for. Tired, but not because of this effect. What would come with the sensation of fullness? Satiety. Satiety, and what else? Sleepiness. 
sleepiness, but that's not that's not what I was looking at. Nausea. Yeah, nausea. And nausea, when you think about the SSRI medications, is a very common side effect, especially when you first start taking those drugs. And why is that? It's not because of what they're doing in your brain. It's because of their ability to bind to these receptors in your intestinal tract and stimulate them. The drugs are elevating serotonin, and that extra serotonin is now available to bind to these receptors and cause a symptom of nausea. Now, who has heard of the drug on Danzatron? And I bet you more of you have heard of it by its what it used to be known as through trade name. That's Zofran, right? Zofran, what is that? It's a very strong anti-emetic that revolutionized the way we could treat patients with cancers by giving them what's called highly immunogenic cancer chemotherapy and allowed them to tolerate it. Give them, give them a drug like cisplatin, very strong cancer-fighting drug that causes a huge amount of nausea. Give them Zofran with that, and they can now tolerate the drug much better than they used to. Ondansetron is a 5-HT3 receptor blocker. It blocks this receptor. So serotonin stimulates it, Zofran blocks it, and that takes away the nausea sensation. We don't use Zofran to treat the nausea with SSRIs typically, but it would make sense that it might work. It's a pretty aggressive approach, but it would make sense. So that's how I usually remember the serotonin causes nausea is because the serotonin blocking drugs treat nausea. How, I know it's a lot of times it's prescribed if people weren't tolerating their opioids well, how does that play into it? Yeah, so sometimes ondansetron is prescribed for people that are not tolerating their opioids. How does that play into this? And the real answer to that is it's been done because why not try it? It's not based on sound pharmacology. And the fact that it works might have as much to do with the placebo effect than anything else. But placebo effects for almost everything are pretty strong. Now, the opioids can cause nausea. Would we all agree that that's true? Anyone with some experience, like know someone who's taken an opioid who's had nausea? Pretty common side effect, right? So the opioids cause nausea for two reasons. One is because they can stimulate receptors in the chemoreceptor trigger zone in the base of the brain to promote that sensation. That's what Kevin mentioned. The CTZ was the site of the nausea stimulation. They also slow gastric emptying. Remember, they slow things down. And that, too, that sensation of fullness can produce some nausea-like activity. Is there serotonin involved in either one of those mechanisms? I don't think there is. But using Zofran sometimes will help. Was there a question over there? Oh, I was just thinking, um, so they use, a lot of times when you go into surgery, they'll give you yeah, so oftentimes you'll encounter patients prior to surgery will be administered prophylactically antiemetic therapy. And the reason for that is to combat the nausea that comes with the anesthetic agents. <laughs> okay. All right, so the bronchial and muscle constriction. So when you increase serotonin activity at receptors in the blood vessels, especially the cranial blood vessels, the, those vessels will constrict. Who's heard of this drug? Sumatriptan. 
otherwise known as Imitrex. Imitrex is a stimulator of a certain subtype of serotonin receptors. It's not 5-HT3, it's like 1A. I'm not positive, don't write these numbers down, but I think it's 1A. So sumatriptan stimulates the type 1A receptor, which causes constriction of blood vessels in your vein, brain, and that's useful to do what? Acutely abort a migraine headache. The reason you're suffering pain from that migraine is because those vessels are doing what? They're vasodilating. The pounding, throbbing headache is because those vessels are dilated. You can acutely abort that if you could somehow pharmacologically constrict those vessels back to where they belong. And that's what sumatriptan does. Now, it will, it will stimulate a constriction of blood vessels elsewhere, too, including potentially where? In your heart, right? So that could be dangerous. Start to constrict your coronary vessels, and maybe you produce some ischemic-like symptoms, which is why we limit the amount of sumatriptan someone is supposed to be using in any given day. It's usually no more than, say, 200 milligrams per day, no more than two doses per day. So, like, 100 milligrams now, 102 hours, and that's it. You're done. And we tend not to use these types of drugs in older patients, especially older patients with underlying cardiovascular disease. While if used appropriately, the risk for cardiovascular side effects is very low, used inappropriately, and those are things that we would have to worry about for reasons that make sense. Then there are some other effects on skeletal muscle, but not quite as relevant, at least not in terms of being direct drug therapy targets. So what's important here so far is recognizing what happens. Not the drug names, but what pharmacologic manipulation would do. If we were to elevate serotonin in the brain, we would have a drug that would be useful to treat what? Depression. Depression. If we were to increase serotonin activity in the GI tract, we'd have a drug that would cause what? No. Block it, and we would have potential antiemetic. Those kinds of mechanisms are what I'm hoping that you'll recall for the next exam. If you remember the drug name, you probably answer the question five seconds faster than you would otherwise. Because the drug name will probably be there. But there'll be some other features that further describe the drug, like sumatriptan, a serotonin receptor agonist. Which of these things would be useful to treat? Something like that. Okay. So histamine subdivided into two overall <coughs> receptor types. There's more receptors. These are the two most important ones and the ones that are known the most about. Type 1 histamine receptor, which mediates all the allergy-like things we think about when we hear the word histamine. Vasodilation, pruritus, flushing, most of that is histamine type 1 receptor stimulation. Histamine type 2 receptors are located where? Not type 1, but type 2. In the, in the, in the cells that line the GI tract, the stomach specifically, that are responsible for the acid that's in your stomach. What are those cells? The parietal cells, right? And on the, on the basolateral, the basement membrane of the parietal cell are histamine receptors that regulate how much acid that cell produces. When histamine binds to that receptor, it triggers acid production. So if you were to give a drug that blocks histamine type 2 receptors, what would you do? You would suppress acid production. And that's what H2 blockers are. Drugs like what? Omeprazole? Well, omeprazole is different. It also, that's a drug that will block 
acid production, but the mechanism is different. The prototype, the first drug was cimetidine, which was tagamet. More commonly used are drugs like famotidine, which is otherwise known as pepsid, or ranitidine, which is otherwise known as Zantac. Where do you get any one of those drugs? No prescription needed, which tells you what? Must be pretty safe drugs for the FDA to trust the public to self-medicate with as much of these as they would like. They're tradition, they're, you could say that they're antihistamines, but specifically they're type 2 receptor blockers. They're selective for working in the stomach and suppressing acid production. They have a pretty quick onset of action and their duration is several hours in length. So they really changed the landscape of how we could treat acid-related disorders when they first became available in the 1970s. The proton pump inhibitors are even stronger drugs, and that's where drugs like Prilosecker, Nexium, Protonix, that's where those drugs fit. Mechanisms are different, not related to autocoids. When it comes to histamine receptor blockade type 1, we're usually trying to treat allergy or allergy symptoms. What's an example drug? Benadryl, otherwise known as diphenhydramine, is one example. Allegra, fexofenadine, is another example. What's the, what's the primary difference between those two? One is sedating. Which one? Benadryl, in most people. And one is non-sedating in most people when used at therapeutic doses. Why? The ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. If your drug is going to be sedating, it needs to go where? It needs to get into the brain. It's not going to be sedating if it doesn't get there. So that means what? Benadryl crosses the blood-brain barrier very easily. And Allegra does not. It can get there if you gave enough of it, but it's difficult. What's another drug that's like Allegra? Claritin, right? And they're all over the counter. If you gave a lot of Claritin or took a lot of Claritin, if you gave or took a lot of Allegra, you'd start to feel sedated, but it would take a lot because it's difficult for those drugs to cross. Diphenhydramine happens pretty easily. So which of the two, diphenhydramine or fexofenadine, Allegra, probably has the larger volume of distribution? Benadryl, right? Because it easily gets into the brain. It must be more lipophilic, which means it probably has a larger volume of distribution. The kinins are not a deliberate target of most therapies, but there are some important drugs that tend to elevate kinin levels sort of by accident. So this also is histamine-like in terms of what it does to the body. It tends to vasodilate. It tends to accumulate in the lungs, so it causes bronchospasm when it's there. There is a type of therapy. Let me draw a picture of this. I don't remember if I put a picture of it in the slides or not, so let's just do it on the board real quick. There's a type of therapy that gets in the way of bradykinin inactivation. So normally this substance is degraded into what I'm just going to call IB, inactive bradykinin. And the substance in some circles is known as kinase. Which would make sense, right? An enzyme that breaks down bradykinin, kinase. 
Well, this enzyme here is the same enzyme that's responsible for the conversion of a substance known as angiotensin type 1 into angiotensin type 2. What does angiotensin type 2 do? Raises your blood pressure. Raises your blood pressure, right? This is a very potent vasoconstrictor. We all produce it, and it's usually produced when your blood pressure is low. If you're volume depleted, if you've just you know, not had a lot to eat for long periods of time, you're hypotensive, your body will produce a lot more angiotensin 2 to clamp down on the vasculature and, and help keep things perfused. The ability to even get to angiotensin 2 is dependent on kinase. If we wanted to prevent your blood pressure from going up, this could be a target of blood pressure lowering therapy. Right? Would we all agree? Knock out kinase, prevent angiotensin 2 from forming, net effect would be a reduction in blood pressure. And what are the drugs that do that? ACE inhibitor drugs. ACE inhibitors prevent the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. The ACE enzyme is synonymous with the kinase enzyme. They are one and the same thing. Kinase that breaks down bradykinin is the same enzyme that converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. So when we use an ACE inhibitor like captopril or lisinopril or any other pril ending drug, we're knocking out angiotensin converting enzyme, preventing angiotensin 2 from forming with the hope of lowering blood pressure. Simultaneously, what are we doing to bradykinin? We're causing it to become elevated. It's no longer able to be broken down because that same enzyme that's needed to break it down is tied up by the drug therapy, the ACE inhibitor. And so now the potential side effect is an accumulation of bradykinins and what? These side effects. You could argue that vasodilation might be beneficial. Right? We're trying to reduce blood pressure. Vasodilation can contribute to that benefit. But what's a more common side effect that patients might experience on ACE inhibitors? An irritating cough. And it's probably a consequence of this bradykinin accumulation. In some cases, it's more serious. It's angioedema. Again, likely an accumulation of bradykinin that's causing that. So when the ACE inhibitor drugs were developed, they weren't developed to prevent this bradykinin inactivation. It was an off-target, unintended consequence. It became appreciated after the drugs made it to market that this was also happening. And it's responsible for some of the side effects we might see with ACE inhibitors. Everyone follow that? I have a question about ACE inhibitors and why some patients can be on them for decades without issues and then all of a sudden have episodes of angioedema. Yeah, so the question here is, um, I'm glad you brought this up. So angioedema is an overall relatively rare side effect. Cough, which is benign, just irritating, is much more common. We either treat through it or switch therapies to try and deal with it to make it more comfortable for our patients. Angioedema, life-threatening, we need to stop therapy and probably not go back to it. Why is it, and this is true, that some people can take ACE inhibitors for long periods of time before they develop angioedema? We don't know. But it's gone out as long as 17 to 20 years before someone all of a sudden shows up with angioedema on their ACE inhibitor. You'd think that it would happen when? Soon after starting therapy, like it does with most allergic reactions, 
Not always the case with ACE inhibitors. Certainly most of them are within the first month or first couple of weeks, but there are lots of cases where ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema doesn't show itself for a year or two or as long as, you know, 10 or 15 years later. And we don't know why. All right, so histamine and what we do to it, and then first-generation versus second-generation drugs. What's the difference? These are histamine type 1 blockers. The difference is the first-generation agents produce drowsiness relatively easily. Diphenhydramine is the drug name I do want you to remember. See that drug and know it as a lipophilic antihistamine drug, diphenhydramine or Benadryl. Recognize either name. And then the second generation agents are ones that are non-sedating. And of these, you pick fexofenadine, which is Allegra, or loratadine, which is Claritin. Loratadine. Loratadine. All right. Loratadine, Claritin. We'll go, it's fewer letters, just by a couple. We'll go with loratadine, otherwise known as Claritin. See that drug name, know it as a non-sedating antihistamine. This is what's in the product label for antihistamines. Do not take unless directed by a provider, in this case doctors, in the label. If you have breathing problems such as emphysema or chronic bronchitis. These are there primarily because these can have drying effects. This is not usually a big deal, but they can sometimes be irritating to this population that looks like this. If you have glaucoma, difficulty urinating due to large prostate gland. Why does that, why do those two things show up here? I can't recall how much we talked about this, if at all. Your blank stares lead me to believe that maybe we didn't talk about it. We mentioned there was an interaction, but we can go into details. All right. When, when you give drugs that have the ability to bind and block histamine receptors, almost always those drugs are able to bind and block muscarinic receptors as well. Not because we want them to, but just because there's a lot of similarity in the receptor type. And the opposite is true. Give a drug that blocks muscarinic receptors, and it will also block histamine receptors. A consequence of blocking histamine receptors is what potential side effect? We just talked about it. Um, all right, I'll give you that one. So the more common side effect that we worry about with like Benadryl. Sedation. Sedation, right? You could say that's a side effect unless that's a desired effect. Another one that I glossed over, in fact I didn't mention it, I didn't even gloss over it, is that <laughs> antihistamines will produce a stimulation of appetite. So the two primary side effects, if you will, of antihistamine drugs are sedation and weight gain. Weight gain is a consequence of increased intake because they increase your appetite. The rest of the side effects are anti-muscarinic side effects. It's not a consequence of binding and blocking histamine receptor, it's a consequence of that drug, oh by the way, also binds and blocks muscarinic receptors. And so when you look in the eye, here's a cross section of the eye, if you were to administer an anti-muscarinic agent, 
to any patient that was able to distribute into the eye, which means it's systemically available, what would happen to the size of their pupil? The amount, the size of the, the pupil that you could observe on exam, would it become larger or smaller? Smaller? 50% chance on this. <laughs> Anti-muscarine drug will make the size of the pupil larger, <laughs> smaller. All right, now, I'm not going to answer that yet. And I will stop soon, I promise. All right, so if you have glaucoma, what's the problem? There's an increase in intraocular pressure. The aqueous humor in the anterior chamber is accumulating to dangerous levels and producing a lot of pressure on the optic nerve and potentially can cause blindness if not dealt with either pharmacologically or maybe through some kinds of surgical procedures. And the reason why there's too much aqueous humor could be either because there's overproduction of it into the anterior chamber or there's impaired drainage of it. And most of that fluid drains in through the trabecular meshwork into the venous system. If the size of this pupil were to get larger, it would be because this iris muscle is relaxing. What would happen to the angle right here if this muscle bunched up into the corner? This angle right here, where the trabecular meshwork is, would it get larger or smaller? It would get smaller. What would that do to fluid drainage? It would impair it, right? If I just told you that an antihistamine drug that has anti-muscarinic properties needs to be used with caution in people with glaucoma, that must mean what to the size of the pupil? It gets larger. Yeah, and it gets larger because this muscle relaxes. So now you have a compromised angle, and that fluid doesn't drain as readily, and the pressure builds up even higher. There are two overarching types of glaucoma, open angle, where the issue is not the angle by which the fluid drains, but there's overproduction. That's the more common of the two, fortunately, because it's not as damaging. And then there's near or closed angle, where the problem is anatomical. The angle here is not wide enough to accommodate the drainage, and now any small change in that angle is going to induce an acute crisis. So it's that latter population we worry about the most. And again, fortunately, it's not the majority of people with glaucoma. Majority or open angle, this is not as problematic, but in general, you want to be careful about using anti-muscarinic drugs, which includes antihistamine drugs in people with glaucoma. That's the reason that's there. Then the enlargement of the prostate gland, I heard a lot of folks saying the sphincter that came up a few times because it came up again today, but it's not related to that. So here's a different picture of our bladder. What's the muscle that surrounds it? The detrusor. And it's innervated largely by what type of, what type of receptor? Yeah. Muscarinic receptors. And when those receptors are stimulated, what happens to that muscle? It contracts and it promotes bladder emptying. So if you give an anticholinergic drug, an anti-muscarinic drug, what happens to the muscle? It relaxes. What happens to the urine outflow? No, it becomes impaired, right? If the muscle relaxes, the bladder stays full. That stimulus to empty the bladder is gone. So anti-muscarinic therapies can promote urinary retention. And that's the reason why that's in the label. 
So if you have glaucoma, especially narrow angle glaucoma, using a muscarinic blocking drug can induce an acute crisis. And if you have an enlarged prostate that's already causing impaired outflow, further relaxing the bladder is going to make it that much more difficult to get rid of the urine. And so that's why it's here. It's not because of the urinary sphincter. That's the effect due to either alpha-modulating drugs or, as we talked about earlier today, the opioid drugs also have some innervation in that muscle, in that smooth muscle of the urinary sphincter. All right, what we'll do is we'll stop there. Sound okay? Yeah. Right, we will eventually finish the slides out. <laughs> but um, we'll begin next week by talking about the more traditional analgesic drugs, the non-opioid. All right, have a good week.